live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about how to make a magnetar. And of course, taking listener questions about all things, because this show is about the entire universe. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. That is a new time, and you can follow along or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about... It was all just an accident, but first the news. Hello, space cadets. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today where we talk about all things space, astronomy, astrophysics, rocketry. If it's above the Earth's atmosphere, it's in this show universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. That is a new time here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with the Space Cadets tuning in live from around the world. Not so much in Europe because it's night-night time there. But we have Space Cadets tuning in from Adelaide, South Australia, Palestine, Alabama, Brasilia, Brazil, Ireland, Ashburton, New Zealand, Washington, D.C., Joliet, Illinois, and somewhere in New Jersey and London you hey London UK okay we're getting some Europeans you you should go to bed people <laughs> we'll take questions that you send there too seriously folks I've only prepped 10 minutes to show material tops so get those questions in Before I start taking calls, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And something, ah, something's been bugging me in the news. There's this story that came out a, a couple weeks ago, but it's still bubbling along about how to make a magnetar. A magnetar are these are. Uh, dead stars. These are leftover stars from the most massive stars in the universe. They are by far the most powerful magnetic fields in the entire universe. Like you think like, oh, an NMR machine gets a strong magnetic field. That is peanuts. That is nothing. Magnetars have magnetic fields quadrillions of times stronger. These are, they are incredible. How do they work? Basically magic. And since it's close to Halloween, I'll just go ahead and call it scarecrow magic. Like we were... (laughs) We're not exactly sure how they get these strong magnetic fields, and we're not exactly sure uh, where they come from. They know we know they come from ma- massive stars. We know they come from the dust of massive stars. How they're born with such mag- strong magnetic fields? Where do the strong magnetic fields go as they age? It's it's a little bit of a mystery, like a magical scarecrow. Like, have you ever seen a scarecrow that's magical? You don't fully understand how it works. But there it is. Same thing with magnetars. Now here's the story. The new story is, is a, a bunch of researchers did some theoretical calculations, some computational modeling, some simulations of two stars merging together. And they found that after the stars merged together, they got a strong magnetic field. And they go on to say, all the press releases and the news reports say, oh, this is maybe where magnetars come from. You take two stars, you merge them together, you get a normal star giant star with a big magnetic field, it eventually dies 
and it leaves behind this incredibly magnetized object called a magnetar. That's a big stretch. That's a big stretch. And at first I was, I was just like, where are they getting this? Like, how do you go from just stars with like a higher than average magnetic field to a magnetar? Like, how do you know that, that that's how the link is made? I wish I could tell you more. But here's what's going on. The press releases are talking about it saying, yep, this is how magnetars are made. Boom, we're done. It took me forever. None of the articles actually linked back to the original journal article, which is always annoying. Like, like, give me the link so I can actually read the paper. So I did dug it up. It's, it's published in Nature Letters. It was, it's published research. It's behind a paywall. It's behind a paywall. Now, I'm part of an academic institution through my library. I have access to nature, uh, but not in my apartment, right? Not, not in my home. I can't, I have to pay eight bucks to read this article. Now, most research articles that are done in physics and astronomy end up on something called the archive, A-R-X-I-V. This is a, an archive of just preprint. It's like free access this is how we actually read and access articles. This article is not there. The authors of this paper, for whatever reason, didn't make this publicly available for free. It's only behind this paywall. I, I don't want to pay seven bucks to read their paper. So I honestly don't know how they reached their conclusion. Yes, I get the logic of two stars merging together. They did some advanced fancy pants simulations. They get strong magnetic fields. And then how is that supposed to get to magnetars, which is like the lead and how every like news article is positioning this. They put it in the abstract of the paper and everything. How do you actually get there? I don't know. And honestly, I don't want to pay eight bucks to find out. Sorry, it just got, went on a rant because it, it frustrated me, folks, because I wanted to tell you like what's going on. I wanted to give you some good science. And I can't because I don't want to pay for it because science should be free. If you believe science should be free, you're listening to the right show. <sighs> anyway, let's get to some questions. That's enough of me ranting about the news. That's the latest and greatest kind. Maybe if we paid five bucks, maybe we'd find out if it was the latest grace, but it's time to have a conversation. We've got a voicemail ready to go. Hey, Greg. I know you were tuning me out earlier, but can you pay attention now, please? Thank you. Can you please play the tape? Hi, Paul. My name is Ben. I'm 14 years old, and I am calling in from Kenya. My question is on quantum mechanics. I understand that observation will cause a wave function collapse, destroying all superpositions associated with that object. But what I've read has been very vague about what constitutes an observation. My question is, what exactly will cause a wave function collapse? All right, Ben from Kenya, that is an amazing question. As you're, as I was listening to the question, I was rolling my eyes a lot, and I would very much like to know that for everyone watching on YouTube and Twitch, I was not rolling my eyes at teenaged Ben. I was not rolling his eyes at his question. His question was fantastic. It's when he said all the descriptions of this process are vague, that triggered a massive viral because you know what? All the descriptions of what makes a measurement in quantum mechanics are vague and there is a reason for that and that reason causes my eyes to roll. 
Here's here's what Ben Ben is asking about. You know, quantum mechanics, the laws, the physics of the very very tiny. Every like everything's uncertain. You never know what you're gonna get. You never know where that particle's gonna be. You never know what kind of energy it has. You never know what kind of spin it has until you actually make a measurement. You can have all sorts of fancy superposition, all sorts of super weird, fantastic quantum mechanic-y things going on. And then you make an observation or a measurement and there's your particle. You don't know where it was going to be, but then you go looking for it. You make your observation and there's your particle. What Ben is asking about is how do we actually make that measurement? Like what what's actually happening in this act of measurement to make it go from a weird quantum system to a not weird normal system? The answer is we don't know. And the reason everything is all descriptions about this are vague is because we don't really have an answer for that. There's quantum stuff happening in the quantum world, then something happens and then a measurement and we and we get results out and we can do experiments basically quantum mechanics and different interpretations of quantum mechanics this is this by the way that has a name it's called the measurement problem we have no idea what's going on when a measurement is actually made somehow it has to go from a quantum thingy to a classical regular thingy we don't know how that process actually goes down Hence, problem, measurement problem, different interpretations, put some language on top of this that isn't really helpful. The standard interpretation of quantum mechanics says there's a wave function that describes what your particle could be doing. Then when you make the measurement, this wave function, quote unquote, collapses and you actually get a thing that you were looking for. What does it mean for this wave function to collapse? Does it happen instantaneously? Is there some sort of connection between the measurement apparatus and the actual quantum system you're observing? Mm, We got nothing. Another interpretation of quantum mechanics called the many worlds interpretation says, okay, okay, that's a big problem. I get it. We're not really clearly defining what is a measurement or an observation, how this transition between the quantum and the classical world actually shakes out. So let's just say it's all quantum all the time. We're just a bunch of quantum objects, you know, bouncing around photons with other quantum objects and Every time you make an observation, there's no transition. There's no break from quantum to classical. Instead, it stays quantum, but the universe itself splits off into different realities, and each reality gets its own measurement. So if you run an experiment and a particle could go up or down when you make the observation, Everything stays quantum, but the but you end up with two universes, one where the particle went up, one when the particle went down. Sounds great, but the many worlds interpretation doesn't really describe how this universe splitting actually functions, like what's going on, what is the mechanism, how long does it take place? Like it's just it's it's basically the exact same set of questions we have for what we the standard interpretation the the what we call the copenhagen interpretation it's the it's the same set of questions like wait a minute okay 
something is happening at the moment of observation. What is happening? We got nothing. So Ben, you're 14 and you're frustrated. If you're going to hang your hat on the measurement problem, you're going to be frustrated for the rest of your life. Maybe someone will figure out. Hey, I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Raider. We're going to take a quick break. Before we do, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash pmsutter. That's P-M as in Matthew, S-U-T-T-E-R. It's your contributions as little as $1 a month that keep this show going. And will we solve the measurement problem with a little bit more Patreon contributions? I'm not saying yes. I'm not saying no. Maybe you should contribute and we can figure it out then. See you after the break. Support for 90.5 WCBE and Space Radio comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions from the Space Cadets ready to go. But remember, you can join the conversation by leaving a voicemail or following the live streams. Go to spaceradioshow.com. And during the little break, I was chatting with the Space Cadets, and the internet wasn't doing so great, so the video was getting jumpy. And I was complaining about my internet provider and just life in general and quantum measurement problems and paywalled articles. It's just it's just a bad evening. It got me in a bad mood, but Nerdy Rodent over on YouTube offered a suggestion. He wanted to know about thoughts on this Starlink broadband. Now, if you haven't heard of this, Starlink is Elon Musk's idea to totally revolutionize the internet by deploying something like, I don't know, 30,000 satellites in orbit that are all going to just going to continuously orbit the earth and offering broadband internet for anyone who wants to connect to it. Okay, interesting idea. I don't know if it'll actually work. This is one of his major tests or one of his major applications for his SpaceX company. Like, okay, let's just uh, put up 30,000 satellites. And the reason this can work is because the whole point of SpaceX is to make access to space cheaper. If you use reusable rockets instead of ditching them in the Pacific after using them once, it might be a little cheaper to send payloads up. And if it's a little bit cheaper, you can start to do interesting things like offer broadband internet. Now, there are some downsides to having 30,000 satellites in the sky, you know, as someone who has some astro astronomically inclined colleagues who like looking up at the sky, having 30,000 moving dots of light may not be the best thing. So we're going to have to navigate that. Will it actually work? Will he pull it off? I have no idea. But what's interesting to me about Starlink is that it's an example of what we can accomplish. Once you actually make access to space cheaper, who knows what you'll be able to do? Because th when things become ridiculously cheap, people come in with all sorts of wacky, crazy, useful, interesting ideas. So what does the future of space light hold and applications of the use of space and Earth orbit? 
it's really, really hard to tell until we actually make it cheap and people start coming out of the woodwork with all their wonderful ideas. Will it ruin astronomy? Helios is asking over on YouTube. I don't think it will ruin it. We'll work around it. It's going to be annoying for sure. Not just visible light, but actually the radio and microwave communications up to the satellites. That's going to interfere with a lot of our different kinds of observations. So it's, but hey, if you're sending stuff into space for cheap, maybe we can have some, some more space satellites, you know, with observatories. And telescopes up there. Maybe we can have like 50 Hubbles. I don't know. Just tossing that out there is a crazy idea. Send me a few hundred million dollars. I'll, I'll develop it. Uh, Netta Davis over on YouTube is asking, I heard that uh, Saturn has 20 new moons. What's up with that? Well, what's up with that is that Saturn has 20 new moons. I mean, it's always had these moons or these had these moons for at least a while, at least a few million years. We just happen to find them. Now, moon, there is no like strict definition of a moon, except that it orbits a planet. So the moons we're finding nowadays are like a couple miles across, like it's just a piece of junk. And you got to wonder, like, okay, is that really important? Is that really a big deal? Like, is, is that, should, should that really count as a moon? Right now we're counting as a moon and Saturn as, like, 90 moons and Jupiter as, like, 85 moons. I forget the numbers. They have a lot of moons. But the vast majority of them, you would not be faulted for mistaking them for just a dumb piece of rock. <sighs> Obviously, as time goes on, we're catching more and more of these quote-unquote moons because they're small, they're dim, they're far away. So we just got to stare at Saturn, stare at Jupiter and Uranus and Neptune for ages. And then eventually we spot more and more of these tiny things. So yeah, we spotted 20 more little dinky rocks in orbit around Saturn. If you want to call them moons, fine are we gonna get to the point where one little molecule of dust in orbit around saturn is it gonna be its 85th million moon i am in such a bad mood oh wow like everything is annoying me and it's kind of amusing how everything is making me annoyed even the moons of saturn and saturn is a beautiful planet as does not deserve me being mad at it <laughs> Yamagishi-san is asking over on YouTube, how is the James Webb going to remain in pristine condition when its mirrors are so exposed? Won't it quickly get scratched and damaged by like micrometeorites? Yeah, you put something up in space, there's little bits of stuff flying all around to tens of thousands of miles per hour. It's going to get scratched, it's going to get pitted, and it's got a giant mirror, and you know, it's going to get damaged. And the truth is, it's just going to get damaged. It's just going to slowly degrade over time. There is absolutely nothing we can do about it. The James Webb does have a limited lifespan. It's only going to be observing for like less than a decade, if I remember right. So by the time the micrometeorites become a problem, it will already be out of coolant. It will already be out of propellant. And the YouTubers are telling, the space cadets are telling me that I'm very entertaining when I'm annoyed. But 
I, I don't feel that's right. I should be entertaining when I'm in a good mood, too. But if you want me to rant about James Webb, I can, because the James Webb Space Telescope is a giant bloodthirsty tick on the back of NASA, where we can't do anything space-related astronomically until we actually launch this thing. So as it delays year after year after year, it just pushes back the schedule of everything that's supposed to come after it. All the money that's supposed to go into other projects just gets funneled into James Webb and it's just getting fatter and fatter and fatter and getting moving. It's technically making progress. They did a test of unfurling the mirrors, but it's still just, here I am ranting again. See, you got me going. It's all your fault, space cadets. <laughs> Thank you for those amazing questions. Man, we are almost out of time. Time flies when you're ranting, but before we go, it's time for the blue shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. Now, I planned in my Blue Shift to talk about how technology is really an accident from science. It's not the point of science, but I got, as you may have noticed, I got fired up today. I got a little bit heated about uh, trying to dig into this story about the magnetars and the merging stars and having to pay eight bucks to actually read this article. I don't know why the authors didn't put it on the free archive. Why aren't these articles just free, period? Why? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say this. Why do journals even exist? I understand that centuries ago, journals were an important way to collect research articles disseminated around the world. They provided some useful services. They arranged for peer review. They did some editing. They had some standards so that not everyone could publish. I get it. Can't we take those good things about journals, like the peer review, the editorial standards? Peer review is done pro bono. I've peer-reviewed papers. As a peer, I didn't get paid for it. No one gets paid for it. It's all volunteer effort. Uh, the editing is done by computers anyway. The standards, the stamp of quality, I mean, really what sets the stamp of quality is that other researchers pay attention. You can publish in Nature, and it's a junk article. And you can publish in a low-tier journal, and it's a revolutionary find. Like, is it really that distinctive? Does it really matter anymore? It's 2019. It's almost 2020. Why isn't all scientific research publicly available for free? Why? Will someone please answer that question? Because I don't know the answer myself. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage, uh, this punchy voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash Sutter, and maybe I will calm down. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio in Columbus, Ohio for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern. That is a new time. Visit spaceradioshow.com for more info, links to the live stream locations and the episode archive. And of course, thanks again, Space Cadets and Earthlings for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. And it should be free. End of transmission.